and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 5, Episode 17, by the tip of the Quivering Sword. North India, the second decade of the 9th century AD. And a new empire is stretching out along the banks of the Ganges River. The heartland of the empire is down where the river slides broad and unstoppable across the plains of Bihar and Bengal and into the ocean. And the lands further upstream? They're ruled by minor kings who bow before the emperor. And beyond that, kings pay him tribute. All of it is under the power of Dharmapala, the man who had lost to his enemy twice, and because of that loss won an empire both times. The kings of North India, it was said, were very pleased to have Dharma as their emperor. He gave them back their original lands to rule. And even the imperial city, the the jewel shining at the centre of North Indian politics, Dharma probably gave that back to the family he had once taken it from. And after that, the inscriptions tell us, Dharmapala settled down into the life of an ordinary householder. Oh, I mean, not very ordinary, after all he was still emperor, but he did settle down to, to ruling peacefully. There was no more life on campaign, no more wars. Instead, he ruled the empire, and he did it in a very conventional way. He ruled according to the traditional law books. And everyone, it was said, sung his praises, from kings to cowherds, people in the city, people in the fields. Everyone loved him. And so it went on until he'd ruled for almost half a century, at which point he died peacefully. But what happened to his enemy, the man who had beaten him, the Pratihara king? Well, he'd vanished entirely, and nobody knew where, and history doesn't hear from him again. And yet, his story isn't finished yet, because his descendants will rise again. This week, we meet the next generation of this battle between these two dynasties. We're going to meet Dharma's son, Deva, the little emperor. And we're going to hear about his life at court and also some of his campaigns. Ready? Let's go. Emperor Deva is sitting fidgeting on his seat. He's outside the door of his own chief advisor. And he's waiting for an audience. And the emperor is still quite young. He's still called Prince, even though he's an emperor now. And in fact, come to think of it, he was never really meant to be emperor. His brother, his older brother, had been prepared for that role, had been the crown prince. But the older brother, he disappeared. No one now knows where. Maybe he had died in battle against the enemy, or, or, or maybe Prince Deva had somehow done away with him himself. We don't know. But however it came to be, Deva is emperor now. And he's waiting outside the door. An emperor waiting for his advisor. An immense compliment. Advisors had always been respected in the parlor empire. 
The previous emperor's advisor, he'd been a proud man. He'd been with the emperor from back in the time when they started, just as a, a small, well, decent-sized kingdom in the east of India. And he followed with him side by side, advising him on how to grow the empire until they ruled not just the east, but the north, the south, and the west too. Gaga and Dharma, those are their names, one a Brahmin, the other a Buddhist, but both devoted to building that empire together. This new advisor David was waiting for now, the, the new emperor, he was a, a crusty old man. He was doing the same thing, though. He was pushing his emperor to expand the empire, to cover the whole of North India from sea to sea, from the Himalayas, the mountains in the north, to the Vindhyas in the south, the south of North India. So Deva paid this ostentatious uh, tribute to his advisor. But it wasn't just his advisor that he paid homage to. Elsewhere in the palace, there were other men he deferred to. If we went down the corridor, through the palace, we'll come to the, the records office. And here they record the, the land grants. These are the things which describe the, the boundaries of the lands donated normally to Brahmins. And he uses words, but it maps them meticulously. It uses descriptions of streams and forests and wells and, and villages and such things to mark out the edge of each of the, the donated parts of land. And then the records were kept for prosperity. Now, the chief record officer, the head of this division, was a man called Vajradatta. And he wasn't only interested in, in land records. He was also very much into hymns, hymns singing the praises of the gods. And in particular, he's interested in a famous hymn to the sun god. By this time, it's, it's old. It's written about 200 years before but it's famous, so well-loved that it will stick around actually until modern times, and we still have it. In fact, we heard from it last season. So the chief record officer is reading this famous hymn, and, and he loves it, and he decides that he's going to write a response to it, a sort of new version. But it's not going to be a hymn to the sun god. This is a Buddhist kingdom we're in now. And the chief record officer is working for a Buddhist emperor. So maybe it's quite natural that the hymn was not to the sun god, but to a bodhisattva. A popular Buddhist bodhisattva, Lokeshvara, lotus-handed, looking down on the world with compassion. Still widely worshipped today, I think. So the old poem started with the rising sun, which is really quite clever and fitting. And the record officer's new version, it starts in the same place. It's following the same poem. Only he can't have the sun at the center of his poem. So he can't have the sun rising at the beginning. So instead, the poem starts with the Bodhisattva's toenails. Yeah, his toenails. The poem talks about how these toenails shone with a light so bright that they lit up the world. And that the gods, everyone from the sun to Vishnu to Kali, all of them Pretend that the light's coming from them, but it's really coming from the toenails. Now, this isn't meant literally, of course. This isn't some sort of strange cosmology. Right? The chief record officer was an educated guy. He didn't think that the moon reflected toenail light. Now, it's, it's a metaphor. You've got this Buddhist lord of compassion being the one who brings the real light to the world. And then the traditional Brahminical gods, they re reflect this light just as the moon reflects the sun. 
It's quite useful, I think. It gives us a window into his mind. When we think about Buddhism and and Hinduism nowadays, we think of them as different religions, maybe rival religions, and that really wasn't quite what it was like. But here we do see how the rivalry was, how one author thought about Brahminical ideas, Brahminical gods, how the rivalry worked in that court. The chief record officer then follows the structure of that old poem, going through a hundred verses of praise, of course, to the Bodhisattva, not the sun. There's one really quite lovely passage where the poem talks about the face of the Bodhisattva. It goes like this. When there is this river of sensuous beauty in the universe, the self-assertions of beauty have faded. The eyes of the meritorious have attained their fruit, but those most unsteady with the perversion, pervasion of desire, their destruction. I think, if with innumerable charming things, starting with the moon, one incomparable face were made, his were yet supreme. May that face of the lotus-handed conquer. That's really quite lovely. I love the way that Beauty is to be feared by those who are full of desire. But it is a little bit serious, a little bit solemn. You don't get much of that wordplay that you usually find in Sanskrit poetry in this hymn. Now, apparently, this poem is a little bit known nowadays in the modern times. Now, to be honest... I'm really not very good at knowing what people know about nowadays. I'm a bit of a crusty old man, a bit stuck in my books. But at least Vajradatta seems to be known about a little bit. If you Google him, you turn up some textbooks and things like that which mention him. And there are these factoids about him that get passed around. These sorts of factoids always strike me as really weird. They've got weird, these specific amounts of detail. So all the websites which mention Vajradatta, also say that he wrote the poem Lokeshvara Shataka and that he was the gem at the court of Devapala, according to Taranata. And all of that's oddly detailed because, well, for one thing, the poem itself mentions where Vajradatta worked. It's a passage at the end, quite possibly written by someone later, but it's part of the poem. So it's a little odd that all of these websites are saying that this guy, Taranata, who's a, a much later historian in, in another country, that, that he told us about it. It's not wrong, it's just a little bit odd. Um, but it's also a factoid that really lacks some detail. At least the first few websites which I checked, they had no hint at what the poem said or what it showed about the world which Vajradatta lived in. Now, there's a certain pleasure to having the name of the poet and the name of the source in your mind somewhere. The sort of the facts, stripped bare, name and serial number. But, it, but it's not my sort of thing. I find it's a bit like learning the names of friends of friends who I don't know anything about and I won't ever meet. I guess I'm partly apologising and partly excusing my taste for skipping over the names and factoids quickly and getting more of the flavour. Hopefully, if you come this far in the podcast, you don't mind the style too much. Anyway, there were other poets at the court. One of them had the name of Abhinanda. It's a name that's even less useful than the name of the previous poet. Not only because it seems to be less well-known nowadays, but also because it seemed to be too well-known back then. 
There were poets called Abhinanda coming out of every court in the ninth century. That's how it feels. And it's frustratingly difficult sometimes to tell between one poet Abhinanda and the next poet Abhinanda. There's this Abhinanda, the one we're talking about in the Palace of the Palas. Now, the Palace is a dynasty from Gauda. We don't know where this Abhinanda came from. Maybe from Gauda. Quite likely, I suppose. And then there's another Abhinanda who's helpfully distinguished by being called Abhinanda Gauda. We do know he was from Gauda. And then there's another Abhinanda who is also sometimes called Gauda because his ancestors came from Gauda, though he was in Kashmir, and he might be the same as the second Abhinanda, although almost certainly not the same as the first Abhinanda, and oh my word, why can't we just call them Abhinanda the first, Abhinanda the second, Abhinanda the third, like, like we do with kings? Back to the point. Abhinanda was writing this poem, and just like the record officer down the hallway, it was a sort of sequel, a response to an older poem. Although this time it was kind of the other way around. He was uh, copying an older poem, which was a Buddhist poem. It was a poem written by the great Buddhist author Ashvagosa. He was the man who made Sanskrit the principal language of Buddhist thought. He was called Horses Crying. We talked about him a few series ago. And he had, back then, he'd written a poem called The Story of Buddha. And now Abhinanda is busy writing a response. The Ramacharita, the story of Rama. And the new poem follows the old poem, but it follows it much more loosely than the record officer down the hall. The new poem this time keeps most of the same, the same meters, Although both of the poems use so many meters that it's kind of hard to keep track. But the new poem sticks mostly to its own story. It doesn't copy the story of the Buddha in structure. It even uses some of the same exact words and sentences that are used in the, the main version of the Ramayana that we use today. There are, though, a few substantial additions in this version of the story of Rama. Some episodes which get passed over quickly in the, in the main version that we use now get a really detailed look in this one. So Hanuman especially, that the monkey god, he goes down into this pit in his search for Sita, and all sorts of things happen to him. And he's a much larger part of the bigger story. And all of that's tremendously enthralling, and it's really well worth a read. But the thing I, I love about this rendition of the, of, of the story of Rama is, is the playfulness of language. The playful is not quite the right word. It, it's the cleverness and if you put Vajradatta's work, the, the record officer's work, next to this work, you'll see what I mean. Where the record officer is Solomon Direct, Abhinanda loves puns. Just compare the description we, we read out of um, the Bodhisattva's face with this lovely line about Rama's face. It goes like this. The rains from the clouds ceased on the side of that mountain. The succession of streams for, of Rama's tears did not end. So this is from part of the story where Rama, the king, the, the, the hero of the story, has been up on a mountain, a mountain in the eastern Ghats. And he's been crying because his wife Sita is missing, uh, and he's, he misses her. He spent the rainy season up there on the mountain whilst people were looking for her, but, but now the rains have ended. But still, he's crying because she hasn't been found. And that's a really lovely image 
But there's so much more because the Sanskrit for side of the mountain or side is Utsanga. But Utsanga also means lap, as in holding your hands in your lap. And, and the Sanskrit for mountain is Bhubrit. But that's also the Sanskrit for king. I mean, Sanskrit's got a lot of words for king. This is one of them. So there's a second level of meaning. The first level of meaning, the rains from the clouds ceased on the side of that mountain. The successions of streams of Rama's tears didn't end. It's the mountain versus Rama. But on the second level of meaning, almost as natural to a, a Sanskrit speaker, who's more fluent than me anyway, it says that the tears ceased in the lap of that king. But the succession of streams of Rama's tears didn't end. So we're contrasting not Rama and, and the mountain, but Rama and another king. Here it's Lakshman, his brother. That's really quite clever and, and playful. It, it's actually surprising too. I mean, this isn't a metaphor or a simile. It, it's a pun. But it's not a joke. It's serious. It's about mourning. And I don't think... I hear many puns that aren't just bad jokes. We don't pun about serious matters. We don't pun about grief. What happened to using wordplay for such serious matters? I wonder if we should bring it back. We've got a little bit sidetracked into poetry. Uh, apologies for that. Let's get back to the, the main point. So, young Emperor Devapala is sitting on his chair, waiting for his advisor to find some free time showing this absurd amount of deference. And it was later said that Emperor Devapala also showed deference to his poets too. He rather liked the poem we've just read, that the Ramacharita, all of its solemn puns included. And it's said that the emperor shared his, his seat, his throne, with the poet, as if to say, writing that poem was as hard as ruling my empire and deserves the same reward. Interesting guy. Devapala. Time went by. The emperor grew. That crusty old advisor left and he passed the post of advisor down to his grandson. These advisor posts were often hereditary, with one family following a dynasty side by side, generation after generation. It would be a lovely to read a political history of India told through the stories of the dynasties of advisors. It'd be tricky to do because they often don't leave too much of a record, but actually, thinking back, if you listen to a few of these podcasts, I'm sure you can think of a few advisors we've got to know quite well. Anyway, there were others around the emperor too, including his cousin brother, who'd taken up a role as chief of the armed forces the general. And the advisor and the general both seemed inclined to conquest, and they seemed to have urged Emperor Deva to push the borders of his empire further out. And maybe the easiest place to push the borders further was in the east. In the west, that was occupied by vassal kings and kings who had slightly weaker allegiance to the empire. But out in the east, that was the heartland. And yet, just a bit north of there, and just a bit south of there, were kingdoms which didn't yet bow to him. To the south and the east, there were the kingdoms of Kalinga. And to the north and the east, there was the kingdom of Kamarupa, modern-day Assam. 
Kamarupa was stretched out along the mighty Red River, the, the Brahmaputra. Now, long ago, it had been ruled by a family called the Varmans, and back then, it, it, one of the kings had been a close friend and an ally of Harsha. But that dynasty ha- had long since gone. And since then, Kamarupa had been ruled by the Mlecha kings. Now, Mlecha means barbarian. So that's a, a pretty badass name for your dynasty. The Mlecha kings probably came from tribes in the hills that surrounded the Red River. And they probably also looked a bit different to people who mostly came from the Ganga Valley. Maybe a bit shorter, a bit different skin tone, a bit different average face structure. The hill tribe folk actually looked down on for these different appearances, thought to be savages. Some of them still are today for that matter. The tribes in the hills had a different culture too. They worshipped gods with different names and, and different practices. And they had a different lifestyle, a different economy even. They produced aloe and, and other goods from the hills and plains of Assam, which were in demand down in the valleys. Some of the tribal groups in the area still have a fairly separate culture. But the Mlecha kings, the ones who took charge of Kamarupa, they immersed themselves at least halfway into Sanskrit culture, into Brahminical orthodoxy. Some of the dynasty took Sanskrit names, although not all of them. And every single inscription we've got from the dynasty is in Sanskrit, in the Brahmi Lipi, the Brahmi script. There are only faint signs of the, the language and the script distinctive of Assam starting to emerge. Mostly, it's pretty vanilla. It might have been written right on the shores of the Ganga. And the Malecha kings traced themselves back to the same founder as the previous dynasty had, the Varmans, a guy called Naraka. Naraka's actually got a, a, a mixed history himself. Sometimes he's called a Malecha, a barbarian. And he's this cheeky chap, maybe more than that. He's this force of chaos who dares to steal the earrings of the mother of the gods and, and to a- attack the king of the gods. But he gets a sort of re-imaging sort of PR job over time so that in later sources, he's a, a mainstream member of Brahminical orthodoxy. And he's even said by some to be the, the son of the god Vishnu and the goddess Earth, a true son of the soil. Every single one of the ancient and early medieval kings of Assam traced themselves back to him, even if they were calling other kings from rival dynasties of Assam Mlechas. The Mlecha kings had at least one foot in mainstream Sanskrit culture then. They ruled their kingdom at the edge of India pretty quietly as far as historical records are concerned. I think there are only um, 11 inscriptions from the dynasty, a dynasty that stretches over 250 years. Now, there are exceptions to this quietness. Exceptions where the Mlechas briefly burst out and had a big play in, in the main stage of history in India. The biggest of these exceptions came in around 725 AD, a bit later than that, when uh, the Mlecha king was a, a man called Harsha. No relation to the Harsha from the last series. It's just a, a common name. Harsha, from Assam, took his armies far from the banks of the Red River. He went down into Bengal, and even further down into Kalinga. And if you believe the, the sources, even beyond that, into South India. 
That was the height of the Mletcher Kingdom's power, but it was, in the grand scheme of things, still a bit of a, a blip. And by the time David Pollard come along, by the time of this episode, that was all generations ago, a distant memory. Nowadays, Kamarupa was, was stuck back on the banks of the Red River, ruled quietly by a Mletcher king called Hadravarman. It must have seemed like the perfect target for Deva's expansion. And his cousin brother, the general, was sent out with the army up to Assam. As they went up the Red River, they would have found this surprisingly sophisticated kingdom with a thriving economy. We get just glimpses of it now because there's so little written record left, but even the glimpses we get are really impressive. So by the side of the river in Guwahati, archaeologists have found a huge workshop. It's two stories high and had hundreds of Literally hundreds of statues piled up, ready to be sent out to, to temples, to houses, to buildings across the land. And a few of those images are still half-carved. They're still working on them. All of them are from the local rocks, so, so granite. Or, or maybe some other local rocks too. And there's a whetstone there, smooth from use. Clearly, they've been actually doing the work at this site by the river. And there are chisels for carving too. And what's interesting is that the workshop is definitely plugged into the, the broader world. You can find bits of coral there, bits of amber and, and jade and, and argate, all of which have to be imported from far away. I mean, stuff came into that workshop from Indonesia, from China. There's even some Roman work there too, although it's, it's probably an imitation. It's probably not from Rome itself. And a business like that producing that many statues and drawing in trade from that far away, that could only be viable if the economy was really thriving. And it's no coincidence that it was by the river. The economy flowed with the river. There's an inscription from Hadravarman, from this, this king of Assam, from 829 AD. And by the way, that's the only date that we have for the entire 250 years of the dynasty. So in 829 AD, there was this dispute on the Brahmaputra between the fisher folk and the navy. And the king had to come in and resolve it. And he decreed that the fisher folk were only allowed to use the center of the river. The edges of the river, they have to steer completely clear of that. And that's so that the large navy ships could be pulled upstream against the current. You know, get a rope and get onto the shoreline and go out and pull. So any fishermen taking their boat near the shore would be fined by the local ruler. And the fine was the hundred cowries. A cowrie, you might recall, is one of those sort of crimped up seashells. The sort that you can hold to your ear and hear the sound of the sea. Try it if you, if you never have. Anyway, cowries weren't found locally. They were imported from overseas. So... A fine of a hundred cowries might seem pretty steep just for pushing your boat a bit too close to shore. A hundred cowries would definitely be expensive today. If you go onto Amazon, they'll sell you 11 cowries for the retail price of 151 rupees. So that's about 20 US dollars for a hundred cowries. So don't go fishing by the shore in today's Assam, not when there are any Malecha kings about anyway. 
Actually, though, back then, carries much cheaper, more in use, I suppose, and also not so valuable. A hundred carries wouldn't have been that large a fine. There was a whole coinage system. This is a proper rich economy. Lots of copper coins, especially. I don't think we have any gold coins from this king. But even the smallest coin was worth quite a few carries. And in fact, there was a system of coins that stuck around and is still around in some rural parts of Assam today, still used for agricultural produce. The system works like this, just in case you ever find yourself as a farmer in remote Assam. So four carries counts as a gunda, 20 carries is a buddhi, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing these, four buddhis is a pana, and 16 panas is a rupee. And in Hajavarman's time, in the time of this episode, there were plenty of copper coins in circulation which were worth a few buddhis, so that's 40, 50 or 60 cowries. And there are even a few coins which are worth a pana or more. So you might be able to pay the fine of 100 cowries just with picking a coin or two from your pocket. Not nothing to a fisherman, but not altogether out of reach either. And these coins that they minted, they're, they're pretty cool. They, um, instead of having the ruler's whole name on them, they just have the first syllable. So for Hadravarman, his coins simply say, ha. Insert some joke about dropping coins, ha ha ha. I can't think of one. So the economy of Assam was thriving. All the more reason for Devapala to take control. As the Pala army made its way up the river, the general would have come into the territory of succession of local rulers. Because power in Kamarupa was spread out, maybe even more so than other kingdoms in India at that time. There was the king, then there were a set of lords under the king, and each of the lords had their own small army, each ruling in their own little area of land, and actually being judge and collecting fines and so forth. And then under them were a smaller set of rulers again, managing an even smaller parcel of land with even a, a smaller remit, smaller amount of power. So the parlor armies working their way up, and they came to the capital city. I'm not going to describe it, I think we did that in the last season. But when the Pala army arrived, King Hadravarman gave up without a fight. That was the immensity of the reputation of the Pala army, and especially the reputation of the general in its head, the emperor's own cousin brother. And now with a Sam under his control... Devapala turned his attention to the other easy target in the east, down south, Kalinga. And there, the army had an even easier time. The king of Kalinga fled from the capital even before the Pala general could get there. The kingdom was won for Devapala. By the way, the name of this episode is from an inscription by some of the rulers of Kalinga, but I've decided to tell that story in a separate special episode. The name's just hanging about. So Devapala's having this tremendous success in the East. Easy successes, but it didn't really matter very much. Because not long after those successes, well, Hadravarman, he was back to ruling Assam. Ruling it alone, ruling it supreme. There's no mention in his inscriptions of being under a Pala king. 
And Devapala didn't really make a serious dent in the history of Kalinga either. And that might be because of what was about to happen with the Pala's old enemy. Whilst Devapala, emperor from the east, was going about conquering, what was the old enemy doing? That defeated king of the west, Nagabata. Well, he died in obscurity. Obscure to us, at least. And his son took the throne. Historians tend to lay into the son, thinking he's a pretty poor king. Even the historians who are very partial to the Pratihara dynasty haven't got anything much nice to say about him. Come to think of it, even the inscriptions from his own dynasty, they're, well... They say that he did similar things as his dad had done, and that he captured some cruel army commanders, not kings, commanders, mind you, and that his cavalry was the best. Well, not his cavalry, exactly. Some of the king's cavalry that he ruled. No, no, not them exactly, but they'd commanded some cavalry, so maybe they would, maybe he just hired some really good mercenaries. That's what the inscription says about him, and that's it. No mention of any kings conquered, land taken, no temples built, no sacrifices performed, nothing really. This is about as close as these inscriptions ever get to saying that a king was a bit meh. The son seems to have only ruled for a couple of years in any case. His name was Rama, by the way. We know that he was hanging out in Gwalior. It's only a few days march from the imperial city. But he doesn't seem to have made any effort to take control of it. No effort to challenge the emperor who now ruled it all. The son died, it said, by immersing himself in the river Ganga, a practice that kings and emperors would start to use in this period. And that was that. The Pratihara kingdom, once on the verge of becoming the empire of North India, was now obscure. It was passed on to his son, a young man called Bhoja, a young man who would achieve what none of his predecessors could, what no one from his age had done. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week I thought, we've had a bit of poetry, so let's go and have a look at an inscription. And this is an inscription from Devapala himself. He's donating a, a, a village in the name of his, his father and his, his family, but um, there's a lot of stuff beforehand about his father's life and his life. And I thought we'd start halfway through. We'll start at the point where... Dharmapala, his father, is describing his mother. His mother was a princess of the Rashtrakutas. Her name was Rana Devi. Which is quite a charming thing to put in an inscription, I think. Though you do wonder if he ever actually said it. Anyway, it goes like this. Is this lady an embodiment in human form of royalty? Or earth itself put into human shape? Or an incarnation of the king's fame, or the presiding deity of his household. Creating these doubts in the minds of his subjects, 
She is Rana Devi, of pure conduct, defeated with her really great virtues, the whole harem. Like oysters producing pearls and gems, Rana Devi, a praiseworthy and devoted wife, gave birth to son Deva Pala Deva of pleasing countenance. And like Buddha attaining enlightenment, that son, Deva Pala Deva, that, this, is, this is Deva, clear in mind, restrained in speech and addicted to pure physical works, attained his father's peaceful kingdom. While roaming, in the course of conquest of the quarters, the elephants of this monarch, who took away the glory of other kings, were reunited with their relations, flooded with rushing tears of joy. And the young steeds gazed for long at the mares, who had their pleasing notes mixed up with shrill sounds of horses in the lands of Cambodia. That self-same path of self-denial, which was first constructed in the Golden Age by Bali, and adopted in the Silver Age by Parasurama, and rebuilt later in the Copper Age by Lavinkarna, but was wiped away in the Iron Age after the death of Vikramaditya, was again clearly brought into light by him. He enjoyed the earth, extending from the unparalleled mountain, that's the Himalayas, honoured by appearance of the Gungas to the bridge, proclaiming Rama's fame, and from the abode of Varana, the Western Ocean, to the residing place of the goddess of fortune, the Eastern Sea. Now begins the actual proclamation. From the victory camp situated in Mudgagiri, in which misapprehension of a series of mountain peaks is caused by a bridge formed with a multitude of fleet, proceeding in the channels of the Bagirati. Doubt as to the constant presence of rainy season is produced by lustre in the day, darkened by extremely dense array of, of mighty tuskers. Spaces of quarters are, are rendered brown by dusts, raised by pointy hues belonging to the immeasurable cavalry. These are presented by numerous kings of the north. And the, the land level is lowered by the weight of armies of rulers of the entire group of Jambu Islands, come to wait upon His Excellency. His revered highness, supreme lord, staunch Buddhist, Maharaja Adiraja, Deva Pala Deva. Ever remembering the feet of devout Buddhist, paramount monarch, right honorable Maharaja Adiraja, Dharma Pala Deva, being in good health, commands all employees, depending on the royal favor, present in the village of Mesica, endowed with groves and enjoying continual special prosperity, situated in the Visya named Krimala, within the Bukti of Srinagara, such as the king and prince, minister, inspector general of intelligence branch, commander-in-chief, aide-de-camp, tributary chief, principal gatekeeper, member in charge of the store, minister in charge of princes, advisor, officer enjoying the same status as the king, officer in charge of the department of religion, member in charge of detection of crimes, officer in charge of the annihilation of theft, judicial officer, executive officer, man in charge of excise, forest official, protectors of the land for tillage, border, fort and portions of territory, that's the bodyguard, supervisor, special officer, superintendent of units of elephants, camels and horses, official manager of the young mares, cows, she-goats and sheep, member in charge of the dispatch of messengers, officer in charge of departure and arrival, uh, that's the reception officer, the courier, the heads of the Vishya and the Tara, the members of the, in charge of the fleet and the Serts from Gauda, Walwa, Karnata, Kasa, Lata, countries and Hana and Kulskastok as well, as ill-famed thieves and unbelievers, as also neighbours from Brahmanas down to Chandalas, including Shudras, householders and fowlers. May it be known by all of you 
that the village of Mexica mentioned above, extending up to the preserved lawn and pasture, forming its boundary, adorned with groves and all sorts of covetable things, inclusive of mango and honey and water and land and fish and grass, overground, right, village which is free from crimes, being endowed with ways for prevention of theft and such, has all hindrance to peace removed from it, to which burglars and night rovers have no access, which is revenue free. That's the description of the village. That has been donated by me under royal seal, including the profits accruing to the royal estate and excluding the dues payable to gods and Brahmins granted by us on previous occasions, enjoyed by them in the past and present forever, for the period of the duration of the moon, sun and earth and so forth. In order that religious merits may accrue to my parents and my humble self. And that's it for this week. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I, I hope you enjoyed it. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my, my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details for that on the website. There's a link in the description of this podcast. Until next time, have a great week and take care. <laughs>